If you have your Bibles this evening, you can turn with me in them to Amos chapter 5. Looking at verses 16 through 20 this evening, the misguided comfort of the rebellious child. Today, uh, we continue our exposition of Amos with the latter half of Amos 5. Last time, uh, we considered the essential nature of humility to the Christian life and really uh, not just our relationship with God, but, but our relationship one with another. Today, we have the privilege of exploring another very important characteristic of our relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship with God, one which merges very well with what we learned this morning in relation uh, to biblical giving. Recall where we ended God's exhortation to the people last time we were together in verse 15. The Bible said this, God saying this to the people, hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. God exhorted the nation to hate evil and to love good. A statement which would seem plain, would indeed seem obvious, but the nation was in a place where the exact opposite was happening. Due to their lack of humility, their minds were blinded to their own condition. They saw themselves as rightly adjusted to the truth. That's why we've seen for these last couple of weeks this, this continual call by the Lord that they not seek unto Bethel, that they not seek unto Gilgal, that they not go to these places of religious, uh, um, religious distinction in their land only to sacrifice the sacrifices of rebellion only to uh, give these false sacrifices, only to engage in this false worship before that golden calf that was there at Bethel. They saw themselves as sitting in a place of truth, though they were actually sitting in darkness. And they were in a place of darkness because of the self-righteousness that was in them. Again, though, that's certainly not how they saw themselves. And this becomes a very interesting lesson for us, a very interesting insight where a person is walking in darkness, but they believe that they're walking in light. Now, if they were to humble themselves and they were to understand the scriptures as the scriptures are presented, they would recognize that they are walking in darkness. They would recognize that they are in self-righteousness. They would recognize that they are in rebellion. But apart from that humility, they will not see it. And that is where the nation of Israel found themselves here in Amos 5. We continue then in verses 16 and 17. The Bible says this, Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord saith thus, Wailing shall be in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, and they shall call the husbandmen to mourning, and such as are skillful of lamentation to wailing. And in all vineyards shall be wailing. For I will pass through thee, saith the Lord. Remember where we began in Amos chapter 5 uh, with that lamentation in verses 1 through 3. Taking up a lamentation for the nation of Israel. A woe uh, that was intended effectively to be a funeral dirge. It was intended to be a, a call of death. And though the nation itself had not died, yet they were in a place where they were on the path to destruction. They were on the path to this death. If something did not change, they would in inevitably and invariably end up in that place because the nation had not humbled herself. They had loved the evil and hated the good. And so God tells them that the wailing would be in two places. The wailing would be in the streets 
and in the vineyards. We might um, uh, see the, the connection here with the streets and the vineyards, two locations that would represent two general demographics of the region. In our own region, we might say there would be weeping in the city and in the country, right? In the streets and in the vineyards. The mourning would be both in the hubs of commerce and in the homes of individuals. And once again, throughout Amos, we've seen this idea that, that as God pronounces judgment, uh, Amos recognized that what would be going through the minds of the people would be, okay, yeah, we're going we're gonna to lose the outskirts of Israel again. Okay, yeah, uh, Gilead's going to struggle again. Oh, yeah, okay, Bashan's going to struggle again. But the capital will be fine, right? But my, my, my house is in the interior of the land. I'll be okay. And God has been telling them throughout, your house is not going to be okay. It's not, just in the, it's not just the outskirts. It's not just the suburbs. It's going to be the palaces. It's going to be the cities that will mourn. That this judgment will touch everyone. It will neglect no one. Desolation into the entire land. The kind of mourning which is not simply private in nature, though no doubt that would happen as well, but the mourning of an entire nation, right? Not just of a family going through an individual crisis, but a societal level of mourning. The kind of mourning where people would be in the streets wailing and weeping and would have no shame in doing so because everyone is in the same place. Because everyone has realized the same mourning. And as we've looked into the book itself, we know that the mourning that is being warned about is about the land being overthrown by their enemies. Not just an overthrow, but a total overthrow. So we read in verses 18 through 20. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. As if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him, or went into a house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light? Even very dark and no brightness in it. As we step into verses 18 through 20, it begins with a woe. The idea of a woe in our King James Bibles is that of an exclamation, both of sorrow, but also of warning. Uh, we see those particularly as, as we get into the, the, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. We have the woe judgments, right? And this idea of a woe is a warning of tremendous sorrow, a warning of, of danger and of judgment that is to come. A mourning for that which is about to happen, that there's a terrible thing coming, and unless something changes, it will truly be a terrible thing. And Amos says in verse 18, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. Now this phrase, the day of the Lord, is an important one biblically. It is a reference to a day of judgment, when God levies his wrath against wickedness and saves the advocates of those who are his people, those who love him, those who have kept his commandments. The day of the Lord is a well-known phrase, particularly because of how it is used with reference to end times prophecy. We recognize that there's coming a day that is called the day of the Lord. And when that day, which is the day of the Lord comes, that will be the day of the Lord's returning. That will be the day of what we call our Savior's second advent. It will be the day when Jesus 
his feet touched the Mount of Olives. And when he defeats all of his enemies and delivers his people Israel uh, from their persecution and brings the world into this state of righteousness in the millennial kingdom. Now, that is the day of the Lord as we look prophetically. Uh, but the day of the Lord can also be somewhat more local in context as it relates to the things that are happening uh, within the scope of God's warnings. In other words, uh, the day of the Lord is certainly speaking and, and certainly regularly speaks of that day that is coming in the future. But when we regard how prophecy works, when we regard how the prophets taught, we recognize uh, a, a, a concept in prophecy called dual fulfillment. And I'm not going to get in, in depth into those elements of prophecy this evening, but the idea of dual fulfillment is that when a prophet gave a prophecy, there was a short-term fulfillment and then a long-term fulfillment of the prophecy. And generally speaking, the short-term fulfillment would actually be a sign in and of itself that validates or that uh, expresses the confidence in the long-term fulfillment. So one of the best examples of this is the idea of the abomination of desolation. We find this statement made in Daniel that there is an abomination that makes desolate. And as we look into the history both of Daniel and then in, in uh, history as, as we read it in the history books, we find that there was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes was a Syrian king who very much so lines up with the Daniel prophetic realities of the abomination of desolation. And within his time, he went into the Jewish temple, he sacrificed a pig on the altar of the temple, and he sought to forcibly convert the nation to a Hellenistic way of looking, a Greek, uh, to, to the Greek gods. So much so that if you read through the Maccabees, you will find that he is in fact called in the Maccabees the abomination of desolation. And so if that's all we had from history, we would be walking through the scriptures believing that that part of Daniel has already been fulfilled until we get to Matthew 24, where Jesus is talking to his disciples about the reality of the end of the world, and he tells them, when ye see the abomination of desolation sitting in the temple, flee. Recognizing that Jesus regards the abomination of desolation as a yet future event. And when we see that Jesus announces the abomination of desolation to be a yet future event, we find that there was a near-term event that meets the qualifications of Daniel, but that was actually only a smaller, localized application of a much broader prophetic reality. And we see a very similar thing here in Amos. The idea of the day of the Lord was first introduced by the prophecies of Isaiah. It's carried forward by Jeremiah and Ezekiel along with the minor prophets. Notice the character of the day of the Lord as presented by the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 13, verses 6 through 13, we read this. How will ye? For the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth. 
The moon shall not cause her light to shine, and I will punish the world for their evil and the wickedness for their and the wicked, excuse me, for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the gold wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place. In the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. Now, this is obviously not talking about the same day as the one uh, that we would see in a localized context in Amos. The localized context of what Amos is speaking of would be the day that the, uh, that, that, that the, the nation of Israel is overthrown by the Assyrians, the day that is being warned about. But in that broader context of the day of the Lord, that is what we see Isaiah talk about here. A day that is described as destruction from the Almighty. Within it, God promises his wrath would fall upon the entire world for their evil, upon the wicked for their iniquity, causing the proud to cease, laying low the haughty and the terrible. And while this is certainly that judgment that is to come, that day of the Lord that is to come, when the Lord will judge the world in his righteousness, we see the character of the day of the Lord through this. We see the character of a day when God will avenge himself against the wicked and deliver the righteous. And this is what is in the mind of everyone when they hear the day of the Lord. This is what is in the mind of the nation of Israel as Amos is talking about the day of the Lord. And we need to keep that in mind as we continue to consider what Amos is saying here. So the character of the day of the Lord is naturally one of great terror. But it is also characterized as a day of great salvation. As the day when the righteous finally, after all of these years, are blessed to see God punish the wicked. A fulfillment of all the questions and all the prayers of the saints throughout the years. David prayed such prayers regularly in the Psalms, did he not? Psalm 13, we read this. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest mine enemies say I have prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord, because he hath dealt bountifully with me. These are the oft-expressed sentiments of the heart of the righteous man. And such sorrows have, throughout the history of the righteous, given way to a particular hope. That in the times of difficulty, in the times of persecution, in the times when the wicked prosper, in the times when evil prevails, in the times when one looks out and they simply do not understand how a just God can allow wickedness to prevail, to succeed, as it does so often in this life, they have this particular hope, the hope that we read about there in verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. The righteous man hopes in the Lord in spite of the wickedness that is around him, in spite of the suffering that he must endure because of that promise of the day of the Lord. Because there's a day where God will make everything right. Because there's a day where God will undo the wickedness of the world that is around us. Because there's coming a day when the wicked will no longer prosper. And where the righteous will shine like the sun. 
The Lord will finally completely and completely vindicate his people on that day. So we think through these ideas. We think through what David wrote in Psalm 13. We think through the nature of the mindset of the day of the Lord, that the day of the Lord is a day where the wicked will be destroyed and the righteous will be delivered. But remember what Amos said to them? Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. As I've said, there are two possible contexts here of which Amos is speaking of when he speaks of the day of the Lord. We do see that it's consistent with uh, biblical interpretation to see a localized idea here that the day of the Lord would be the day that the Lord is doing the work that he has been promising throughout the book of Amos, which is, of course, the day that the Assyrians come and they overthrow the nation of Israel. But we also recognize the further context That day of the Lord, that final day of the Lord that is promised in Isaiah, that is promised in Jeremiah, that is promised in Ezekiel. And Amos tells his listener, woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. And the reason why is for this reason. Amos says, because for you, the ones who he was talking to in this day, the ones who are listening to his prophecy in this day, Amos says, the day of the Lord is not going to be a good day for you. Because they're going to be on the side of judgment. Because they will be numbered among those whom the Lord will pour his wrath out on that day. And if we have come to the point in Amos where we'd say, I'm really surprised, Pastor, that nothing's gotten a hold of them yet, that they haven't realized that what Amos is saying, that, that they, they're going to build houses, but they're not going to be able to live in them, and they're going to plant fields, but they're not going to be able to, to harvest them. It's really surprising that they haven't gotten it yet. You'd like to think that at this point, someone would wake up and say, wow, this is a big deal. See, it's not just that God is angry enough to allow the, the Assyrians to have some of our land or to have our houses. But see, earlier in, in the chapter, God told them, prepare to meet thy God, right? He said to them, you're going to be destroyed. And now he's telling them that when the day of the Lord comes, for them it will be a day of darkness and not light. See, the hope of Psalm 13 is the day of the Lord, but it's the hope that that day for us will be a day of light. Amos says, not, 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 not for his audience, not on this day. They will be on the side of judgment. To whatever degree his listeners would be looking forward to the day that God judged the wicked, they should not because it's them. They are the wicked. Amos thus characterized the day of the Lord as a day where men were fleeing from a lion and met a bear along the way. Or that they were resting in a house and as they leaned against the wall of that house, a serpent would bite them. The illustration here is of the nation who, when they hear the promises of the day of judgment, they feel a measure of relief. That's the day when they finally escape the lion that they've been fleeing from. 
the day when they finally get rest from their enemies. Except that in the case of those unto whom Amos is speaking, he says, on the day that God judges their enemies, delivering them from the lion, God will be for them a bear. They will be delivered from the hands of the Assyrians. They will be delivered from the hands of their enemies only to be delivered into the hand of the Lord because they've offended him, because they've wronged him. That on the day that they say, finally, I will get my rest. Finally, the day when the Lord delivers from our enemies. And yet on that day, they will still have to contend with the Lord for the Lord's justice will fall upon them himself. And that leads us to what we can think about this evening. There are two subsets of people that I'm speaking to today as it relates to the direct application to the sermon. First, there are those who have never accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. When it comes to judgment, there's no question to what that judgment looks like in the Scriptures. The Bible tells us that those who have accepted Christ as their Savior have their name written in a book called the Lamb's Book of Life. We read about that book in Revelation chapter 20 where the Bible says this in verses 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So Revelation tells us of this day that is the day of the Lord. And following that day, there is a day of judgment. On that day of judgment, books are opened and another book, of op uh, book is opened, which is called the book of life. And the Bible tells us that all of those whose names are not found written in that book of life are cast into the lake of fire, a place of eternal conscious torment and separation from the presence of God. And that is the most natural, the most simple application to what we find in Amos this evening as it relates to our own time. That for those who have never accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, for those who have never come to that point where they've recognized that they are separated from God because of their sin, and that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself, no amount of good works, not because you've been born into a good family, into a believing family, not because your parents are saved, not because your grandparents are saved, not because they have a, a, a good testimony in the church, not because you've been baptized, that none of these things are sufficient to make you right with God because you have sinned. And if you have sinned, then you are guilty. And the punishment that God has prescribed for those who are guilty of sinning is this place called the lake of fire, this place of eternal separation from God and conscious torment. And for those who have never accepted Christ as their Savior, then the day of the Lord which is coming will be for you a day of darkness and not of light. It will be a day of judgment 
For though God has sent his son to die on the cross for your sins, and though God offers the gift of salvation freely for all who will accept it, you have not accepted it. You've not received the gift. So Jesus taught in John 3, verse 18, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Those who have not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God, setting aside anything and everything that you might be trusting in to be right with God yourself, repenting of your dead works and putting your faith in God, Acknowledging that only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Only what Jesus has done can make you right with God. And only as you put your faith in what Jesus has done can you pass from death unto life. Those who have not accepted this promise, the Bible says in John 3.18, are condemned already. The path is already set out. The condemnation is there for those who have not believed on the name. Your name is not written in the book of life on that day, the day of the Lord, that day of darkness. It will be a day of darkness and not light. You'll be cast in a lake of fire. But it doesn't have to be this way. We read John 3.18. That comes after John 3.16 and 17. John 3.16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17 goes on to say, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. That, that's, that's, that's happened already. They're already condemned. Jesus came into the world to save the world. And this is the promise for whoever is willing that if you will put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, you will not perish but have everlasting life. Then the day of the Lord can be a day of light and not of darkness. Can be a day of salvation and not of judgment. There is a second subset of people that are listening to me this evening, and that's the subset of those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Those who have recognized that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You have come to Him by believing on His name unto that end that you have been saved. Don't let these words fall upon deaf ears for you. We have spoken now for several weeks about the reality that there is coming a day of judgment for God's people as well. That judgment, in fact, 1 Peter tells us, must begin at the house of God. And we've talked about this several times, and I'm not going to rehash everything that we have said about that. But Amos' words, when he is talking to the nation of Israel, he is speaking to a group of people that were under a covenant, A direct covenant with God. Now, it's a different covenant than the one we are under. The nation of Israel was under the covenant that we call the law of Moses, directed toward a people who know God, who are uh, who, who, who understand what God expects of them, a people who had entered into a relationship with God, but who had rejected obedience. 
And again, in Amos's day, the obedience that they had rejected is the obedience of the law of Moses, a physical covenant with physical blessings and cursings, which God entered into with the physical nation of Israel, which at this point had divided themselves into the southern nation of Judah and the northern nation of Israel, all of which, though, were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's seed, all of whom had entered into the covenant on that day and been sprinkled with the blood of the covenant in the days of Moses. Now, that covenant had nothing to do with them being saved from their sins. But it was nevertheless the covenant of election that made the nation of Israel a unique and special people unto the Lord. And there came a day where Jesus Christ came. And when Jesus Christ came, he died on the cross. And and, and when he died on the cross, he, he secured salvation for all men who would receive it, not just for the nation of Israel. On that day, as we would describe it, we'd say that the nation of Israel was put on pause, that the promises of God were put on pause. We stepped out of this uh, expectations of the law of Moses and into the law of grace. We are not under the law of Moses today, and yet we too are a covenant people, are we not? That when we partake of the Lord's table together, we remember that that is the New Testament, the new covenant In Christ's blood. We are not under the old covenant of the law, but we are under what Jeremiah called the new covenant. What Jesus called the new covenant. The election of the church, just like the election of Israel, is an election of purpose that we entered into when we took the steps of obedience for the church. That would be when we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. We entered into the election that is the covenant of grace. And in doing so, we were called unto this end, that we would be rightly related to God, that we might show the world how to be rightly related to God. And so as we think through the words of Amos, though, yes, there's a natural application for those who have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, if we actually compare the message of those unto whom Amos was speaking, he was speaking to a covenant people who understood God's expectations, but who had stepped outside of God's blessings, then we might be able to naturally say, That this warning is not just to unbelievers about the day of the Lord, but that as believers, those who are secure in their salvation, who understand that we are yet going to heaven, when we take this idea and we compare it with what we've talked about over the weeks, that there is a coming a day where the Lord will judge his people, where judgment begins at the house of God, we understand that this warning can redound into our hearts as well. When I read the account of judgment in Revelation 20, I focused a moment ago upon the Lamb's book of life. But just before the Lamb's book of life was opened, the Bible said the other books were opened. And we've talked already about that idea that there is also coming, uh, that, that, that the, the books that were opened were the books of men's works, and then the other book that was opened is the book of life. We've talked before about the idea that there is coming a day where the Lord will judge his people. And this evening, What I would like us to think through, taking stock about what we've learned over these past several weeks about the Lord and about judgment and about reward and suffering loss, a sort of final appeal. Your disposition toward the day of the Lord is not something that you want to get wrong. It's not something you want to ignore, and it's not something you want to neglect. There are many things in life that we can get wrong. 
Some of them have pretty serious consequences in this life. Some of them maybe don't have much consequence at all. You and I can think back to mistakes that we've made, lessons we've had to learn. We call it learning the hard way, right? And yet as we learn the hard way, we recognize that uh, there's a, generally an opportunity to pick ourselves back up, get back on our feet, move forward, figure it out, become better for it. We've learned the hard way. It's not the ideal way to learn, but you know, for a lot of things in life, it's the way you got to learn. Your disposition toward the day of the Lord is not one of the things that you want to learn the hard way. When we think about pride and humility, as we've thought about it over the course of Amos, when we think about obedience and rebellion, as we've thought about it throughout the course of Amos, we aren't talking just about consequences in this life. We're talking about consequences that echo into eternity, Christian. God forbid that you and I would be rebellious children. Knowing that the day of the Lord is coming, but not really taking care to consider our disposition toward that day. For some here this evening, you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. So yes, the day of the Lord will have that element of salvation in it. You will end up in the place where you are you enter into the glory of your Lord, but as we think through the warning of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it will be a day where you will be saved, yet so as by fire. We've already talked about that. And so the exhortation of this evening is to assume eternal thinking. That when you plan your day, when you plan your actions, when you plan your intentions, when you react to other people, when you think about your long-term goals, as you think through what it is to live this Christian life, think through it not just in light of what, that, what, what those actions, those reactions, those interactions are going to mean for uh, your church family, what they're going to mean for uh, your, your wife, what they're going to mean for your children, what they're going to mean for your parents, what they're going to mean for your husband. Think through what those actions, those intentions, those desires, those... Uh, th- those um, those thoughts, think through the implications on the day of the Lord. Does the day of the Lord come to your mind? Are you exercising this kind of eternal mindset? It's very easy to exercise that eternal mindset when we look at the wicked around us and say, thank God for the day where God's going to judge that wickedness. But do you carry the exact same mindset into the way you live? the way you act, the way you react. Can you see, metaphorically, beyond your own nose as it relates to the day in and the day out? Are you going to forgive? Are you going to humble yourself? Are you going to give, as we talked about this morning? Are you going to get angry? Are you going to be selfish? We think about all of the consequences of those things as it relates to our relationships, as it relates to our church, as it relates to your pastor, as it relates to your family. But what about as it relates to the day of the Lord? What is that day going to look like for us? Because that day is coming, Christian. And God forbid that we would be among those, like in Amos' day, where that day will be darkness and not light. 
To that end, may God help us to be ready for it. So that that day will be a day of deliverance, a day of rejoicing, a day of reward, and not of sorrow, not of loss. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.